Welcome back to Westminster Sunday morning studies. I, uh, I had a great summer. I hope you did. And part of the greatness of my summer was being involved in planning um, for this class. And I think I told you last year that things went together very quickly. Wow. You should have seen this summer. Uh, I've always invited topics. And someone came up with the idea of, really unique, really novel, right? Why don't we study the Bible? The Bible. <laughs> wow. Never thought of that one. And I thought, well, you know, sometimes, quote, Bible studies are considered dry. Uh, sometimes uh, that's just for the confirmands. But then a few people started asking me questions, and I realized what I don't know. Um, and so we organized a meeting with some of our theologians and pastors and got together, and that breakfast was inspiring. And everybody caught fire, and uh, this course was born for this year. And I'm really excited. I think it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful year. And now you don't have to get up in the morning and say, I wonder what they're going to talk about. (laughs) You also don't have to listen to me wax off and on about what we're going to talk about. So uh, I think it's going to be a great, a great year and a great study. And Pastor Michael was one of those enthusiastic people, so he's going to uh, introduce the rest of the, of the year. But I, before we start, one more quick thing. Have you noticed the difference up front? If you remember last year at the end of the year, I said, you know, we're having trouble setting this card up. If you remember some of the classes we had, we had trouble because we take it down, set it up, take it down, set it up. We couldn't get the video to play, and it kept... But if you turn around and look up on the wall, I asked for donations, and a very enthusiastic couple came forward, and that couple made this possible. And their reason for doing it was that Westminster class has been an inspiration and a joy to them. And and I I just want to tell you that maybe they're still standing up here. I just want to tell you that my hope and prayer for this year, I'm thanking you. Uh, my hope and prayer for this year is that Westminster is a, as much a blessing to all of us as it has been to Jack and Phyllis. Oh, and Brian, Brian's, Brian did wonderful work. And we did it very economically compared to the original estimate. So thanks, thanks to you for that. I'll... I'll share one more thing with you. I drove in today, and I, w- I couldn't help but uh, think about the passage from Isaiah. So let this be our opening prayer. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return it without watering the earth, and make it bud and flourish so that it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. And you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Lord, for this rain today, we give you thanks. For this study this year, we give you thanks. And as we study your word, might it accomplish, as you promised, in us, through us, the word of hope and peace for the world. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you, Dan. Thank you, everyone, for being here. The Lord be with you. Uh, as Dan has already shared, I am very excited, looking forward to this year through the Bible. Uh, the first few weeks, I will be at bat uh, talking kind of uh, some big picture ideas, introductory material, and then we'll actually get into specific sections of the Bible. So I'm very excited. We have, I think, six teachers uh, and professors beyond me, pastors, theologians, uh, and these are folks who we have seen uh, who are well-loved, and we've got at least two, if not three or four, new faces who we've never had teach Westminster. So we're really excited for the whole year. We're going to first get off, uh, uh, start, start off the class here um, by looking at a manuscript, and we'll do this a little more in a few weeks. But uh, this is a page out of an ancient manuscript called the Codex Sinaiticus. So uh, what do you first notice here if you, when you look at this? Yeah, there's not very much punctuation. I don't think there's any. Yeah, I think you're right. There's some, some line dividers here. Not sure what that is. It's all in Greek. Are there any spaces? No spaces. Uh, so it's all Greek to me, right? That'll be the tagline of this class, I think. Um, but there's something special about this. This is one, one column on a much larger page. And this can, uh, is, contains John 7 through John 8. Now, uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, this is, after all, a year through the Bible. You may want to have a Bible in front of you. If you have a Bible in front of you, can you open up for me to uh, John chapter 7, verse 52, 53, what do you see? 53, starting in 53, what do we have? Chapter 7, John chapter 7. Verse 53. Oh, wow, yours does. So, 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And each went to his own home. But Jesus went onto the Mount of Galilee. Then the whole story of that woman caught in adultery and then they try to cast stones and Jesus says, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Whoever has... No sin casts the first stone, right? And he writes in the sand. That whole story, something special about this codex. It's, it should be right there, where that little dot is. It's not there. It's not there. So what do we make of that? I'm curious, for those out there, what does your Bible say? What do your Bible notes say? A bracket, yep. Yeah, Lori. Oh boy. Okay. Okay. Does it have the whole story of the woman caught in adultery? What's, what's the next verse? 
the very next verse. Yeah, Jack, what do you have? Well, mine says, then they all went home. And then? 53. I'm done. What's the next chapter? What's the beginning? Does it go into the, the next story? The woman caught in adultery? So, every Bible is going to display this a little differently. What scholars have found is this, what's technically called the pericope de aldutera, which is right here. The pericope, which is, pericope means a cutting of a, a little look at scripture, right? A little passage. Uh, it's missing here because uh, scholars have figured out, looking at all the ancient manuscripts, it probably wasn't original to the text. Although it's a beloved story, it wasn't original to the text. It floated around. Earlier manuscripts have it in other places. Some put it in the Gospel of Luke. Some put it at the end of the Gospel of John. Some don't have it at all. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this? This should be raising, this is a rhetorical question for now. We'll come back to this later. But uh, there is at least two possibilities. One is John never wrote it. Somebody added it in later. But did they add it in? The one possibility is they added it in for their own reasons. They, they thought it was a good story. They heard it somewhere. Or somebody else said, that was my favorite story and you left it out. No other gospel writer put it in there. John, come on, you forgot it. This is a good place. This happened just after that, just after Jesus did that, right? This is, we have to put ourselves back into Bible times, right? The first century of the church, when the Bible and the, the Bible was still coming together, right? This community had this gospel of, of John, Maybe a few of the epistles from Paul and a few of the others. But they didn't have the Bible as we know it until about 375. So uh, what do we do when we have stories in our memory that aren't there on the page? John forgot him. Is it that it really happened? Did it not? We don't know. But something of interest. And this, these are the sorts of questions that we hope to touch upon. We won't go too far depth in, uh, into, but uh, today we're going to talk about just broadly, how do we understand the printed Bible, right? So I, this, is, this is actually even a little old and archaic because m- most of you I see are looking at your phones and looking at the Bible on your phone, right? So how do we understand the Bible in general, Right? Uh, do we have just one book? If it's printed, we've got one book, right? It's cover to cover. This is one book. I can hold it in my hands. It's just one book. But I'd like us to think throughout this class that it's more like a library or even a compendium of books. Each one tells a different story And through the the Spirit, over the ages, they've all been brought together for your reading pleasure in one volume. That does not make it one book. So who wrote these books? Who wrote these books, right? Questions of authorship. These are the sorts of things that as you are engaging in reading the books of the Bible, this compendium, this library, these are questions you should be asking who wrote it, right? Because every time we read anything in the world, knowing who wrote it 
can tell us a lot about what it means. We know that the Bible, the books of the Bible, were written by dozens of different authors. And they wrote over more than a thousand year time span. So, so the folks who wrote the Gospels didn't, had never met Moses, right? Or the people who wrote the earliest books of, of the Hebrew Bible. So there's a thousand year time span, vastly different situation, vastly different political sphere. So where did they write? So, some wrote probably in the wilderness. Some wrote in times of plenty, political and cultural flourishing, while others wrote in exile, in captivity or in prison. And this changes how we interpret a letter, right? In Paul's, some of Paul's letters, he says, yeah, I'm in prison right now. What, you're, you're where? You're writing to me from where? We're going to interpret that kind of a, a letter differently than, than a psalm, than a parable, right? So understanding, again, authorship, dating, or the date of composition, location, and condition can have a real effect. But also audience. To whom did these uh, authors write? Were they to the children of Israel, right, who have a, a genetic uh, uh, genealogical ba- uh, binding to the covenant, right? It doesn't matter if you, you believe it. You are a child of the covenant, right, because you are born into the family of Israel? Or is this to Jews who believed in Jesus or Gentiles who believed in Jesus but who were not by birth Jews and therefore chose to be a Christian or a Jew, right? And in what language did the authors write the Bible? So that's a question for us all. Let's see what we know. What languages were the Bible, was the Bible originally written in? Greek, I heard it's Greek over there. Thanks, Greg. And Aramaic, a little bit, mostly Hebrew. So there's a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament uh, Hebrew Bible. And you have to forgive me, I will probably say Old Testament more than I'd like. Generally now, in the last 30 years, there's been a movement to, to stop saying Old Testament and to start saying Hebrew Bible to be more, uh, to honor our Jewish brothers and sisters. So I'll probably say it more often than I like and kick myself along the way. But the Hebrew Bible, yes, is written in Hebrew, but there are sections in Genesis, in in Daniel, and a few other sections where there's a few parts in Aramaic. And then, yes, the uh, New Testament is all written in Greek, in Koine Greek, which would would have kind of been, it wasn't the most formal, it wasn't classical Greek. Uh, It was kind of, the everyday conversational Greek. There are parts like the first few chapters of Luke that were a little bit more highbrow and classical, but the majority of the New Testament is written in everyday Greek. But it's all Greek to me, right? So something that I think can be a, a guiding metaphor for us throughout this whole class is this phrase, uh, Shiva'im panim Torah, which is here in the Hebrew. Shiva'im panim Torah, which means the Torah, Torah being the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We also call the Pentateuch. The Torah has 70 faces. 
And this phrase is sometimes used to talk about there are different levels of interpretation, different ways to understand any given passage. So from a writing from some early Jewish scholars, this is Bamidbar uh, Rabbah 1315. This is where we get this phrase, which is so important in Jewish uh, interpretation of the Bible, that where it is written, there are 70 faces to the Torah. Turn it around and around, for everything is in it. And so, like a gem, we look at Scripture. But in some ways, we look at each book as a gem. Right? We have a whole bag of jewels, if you will. And each one we can take out, and we can turn and examine, and each one has these 70 faces to them. We can look at it from a different angle. We can hold two up and look at two together, right? So throughout this class, what I hope that you gain is a sense of wonder that, that it is possible to read Scripture. You don't need a degree to read the Bible, but that there's always more to learn. There's always another side of that gem, another face to look at, and another way that we can hold up these gems of, the, of Scripture and, and understand more together. So, here's just a, a general question. If you asked me, where do you live? How helpful would it be if I showed you this picture? How helpful? How helpful would it be if I showed you a picture of the Milky Way galaxy and said, this is where I live? That's probably not what you're asking. That's not too helpful for you. Is that right? Because my assumption is you all live there too. Don't know that for sure, but my high hope, right? <laughs> now, how, how about if I showed you this picture? Slightly more helpful, but still we all have the same point of reference. Again, I think we all live on this planet together. But then, let's zoom in even further. What if I showed you this picture and said, where do you live? This is where I live. You have no idea where that is, do you? Maybe some of you have actually been to my house. I don't know. But this is my front door, right? This, uh, this is not all that helpful for telling you where I live. And so in the same way, when we ask questions about the Bible, there are big questions that are kind of helpful and can get you at the approximate answer. But then you can also go way too far in and, whoa, that's not at all what I wanted. You want, when you want, when you ask me where I live, you probably want me to tell you uh, I'm north of Glen Oak High School, which you all know, but if I talked to somebody in another state, they would have, Glen Oak High School, where is that? Okay, right? So we have to speak differently to different people about just a basic question, like where do you live? Because if I talk to someone from abroad, as an example, and I say, I live in the States, so I live in Canton, right north of Glen Oak High School, they're going to say, Canton, where's that? Well, Ohio, where's that? They're not going to have the same point of reference. So just like the scriptures are written from an author and to an audience, and they have certain similar points of reference, when the audience changes, it's a different story. Right now, if I met if I met uh, somebody from a different galaxy, right? Let's uh, go sci-fi here for a moment. Someone from the uh, Andromeda galaxy, and I say, "Oh, I live in the Milky Way." They're like, oh, "Great, 
that makes sense to them. That's helpful for them. So sometimes answers are helpful for some people and some questions and some situations, but not all the time. Okay. So what I hope this helps us to do is understand that there is a macro, there are macro questions to be asked, and there are micro questions to be asked. And at each turn, one of them is helpful. We can learn something from each new approach. Zooming out to see the whole galaxy, we can understand some things that we can't when we look at my front door, right? So in this way, we're going to, just today, we're going to look at seven, is it seven? It is eight. We're going to look at eight different uh, arenas in which we can be asking some big questions and then some little questions. So all religious literature from the ancient Near East, we could zoom out even further and talk about all literature, right? But that's, that's far too much. Then we can talk about all religious literature that was written about the same time as the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, right? So this includes books like the, those found in the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, and more. We could talk about literature considered canonical or authoritative by Protestants today. And if that sounds a little odd, uh, let me put that into uh, an easier word for you. That is probably the Bible in front of you, right? We can just talk about the Bible itself. Within the Bible, are there, are there questions we can talk about, right? That bag of gems that we hold up, can we hold up two books and look at how the, the light interacts between them? Then once we start dividing books and talking about certain themes, we can do genre analysis, we can do analysis of various themes, talk about one topic throughout the whole of Scripture, or focus in on one area. Or we can just talk about one book. Just one book. We can look at narrative arcs, right? Like what, what from uh, the time Jesus was betrayed to his resurrection. That's a narrative arc. Or we can make it even bigger. We can zoom out, zoom in, right? Then we can talk about particular phrases that are important, all the way down to words, right? So galaxy, all the way down to my front door. All religious literature from the ancient Near East, all the way down to words. And we could go further out and further in, but this is the most, this is, this is what makes sense. So let's start at the top. All religious literature from the ancient Near East, we don't have to read everything up there, but um, we can look at the book of Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, which is a creation story. Right? And we found that there is a Babylonian creation story called the Enuma Elish. The Enuma Elish. And we don't have the whole thing, right? This is the tablet that it was found on, so some pieces and parts are missing. But what we understand from it is there, there are some similarities between the Babylonian story of creation and Genesis 1, one of our stories of creation. So darkness precedes creation. Uh, and the sequence of creation is similar. There's the division of waters, the dry land, the luminaries, and humanity, followed by rest. Followed by rest. That's pretty important. 
So Peter Enns, a, a big biblical theologian and, and author, wrote that it's very clear that these stories share a common ancient way of speaking about the beginning of the cosmos, but those similarities should not be exaggerated or even minimized. They're telling us something. Even though Genesis is unique, and even though it is scripture, it is an ancient story that reflects ancient ways of thinking. And though these stories are not directly connected, they share common ways of, of thinking about beginnings. And I love this phrase when he says, they breathe the same air. So we can't know, right? These stories are so old, we have very little documentary evidence. We have this story, we have this story. Did these people know each other? Did they talk? We don't know, but we know enough to say that whoever, whoever was writing these stories, for our sake even today, they breathe the same air. There are similarities between them. We could also, in the same vein, we could look at the plagues from Exodus, right? There's 10 of them, and uh, many scholars, even scripture points to this, but doesn't flesh it out very much. Uh, The Exodus plagues, right, all the way from water into blood down to the death of the firstborn, the, the idea there is that each one of those plagues, it's not just a way to to hurt people and a way to get the Israelites free, the children of Israel, I should say, but it is, in fact, a way for that God, Yahweh, is showing his power over the Egyptian gods, right? Let there be no confusion. Our God, the God of the Israelites, is the God supreme over all other gods. So when Yahweh turns water into blood... He is opposing the Egyptian deity Hapi. Frogs, Heket, all the way down. Death of the firstborn is uh, against Osiris. Now, we don't believe these gods existed, right? But in the Egyptian mind, these are our gods. You're telling me you just turned water into blood? But, but Hapi, Hapi is the god of the Nile. He will surely protect us. But your god just did that? Or, uh, let's see, darkness for three days. That is a cosmic event. Yahweh, our God, has just defeated Amun-Re, the sun god. That is incredible. An incredible show of force, an incredible show of power. And it doesn't matter what god you're praying to in the Egyptian pantheon, our god is better. Our god is more powerful. So understanding this for me at least, reframes that whole story. It's not just about vengeance and we need to get what we want so we're going to use force to do it. It's a much bigger story. Uh, We need to talk a little bit about uh, how the canon came to be developed. So the canon is the word that we use. It comes from the Greek meaning rule or measuring stick. And it it is the Bible before you right? It is, well, actually, I should say the Bible before you is a canon, and we'll come to that in a second. But it is a set of texts or books uh, in which, which a particular religious community regards as authoritative. So scholar Bruce Metzger defines it as an authoritative collection of books. So let's think back And this is where we can get into some audience participation here. Uh, Let's think back and put ourselves back in that first century uh, with Jesus and after Jesus. And let's think about 
how they would have used the word scripture. Before they were Christians, what were most of those disciples? Right? They were Jews. So what would they have considered scripture? The Torah, the the Tanakh, right? The Torah, the Nevi'im, the Kethavim, which are the three parts of what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. They would say, that is scripture. Okay. So this world-changing event, universe-changing event happens. Jesus comes. He is Lord. This is God in flesh. He is Lord. He just died. Now he's been resurrected. Now he's ascended. What do we do? What do we do? Well, we still have the scriptures. We still have the Hebrew Bible. But now what? What is scripture? The, the day after Jesus went up to heaven, the only scripture is the Hebrew Bible. Over a period of a few hundred years, through various, for various reasons, the canon came to be what it is. But let's first imagine that we are, we're in Corinth. Why do we know Corinth? The city of Corinth. Hmm? Yeah, what, what do we know about it or why do we know it from the Bible? Anything? Corinthians, right. The city of Corinth, the people are the Corinthians. And so we have two major letters in the Bible. First Corinthians, First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. Well, they received those as letters directly to them, right? Well, maybe they also, epistles were written first. Let's talk about that first. So epistles are those letters that come after Acts, right? But before Revelation. So epistles were all written first. Because what did Jesus say, right? I'm going away for a little while and I'll be back. But then... Everyone understood that, that he's going to be back before I die. I'm not going to die. I'm going to, we're all still going to be here. We don't need to write anything down. Why would we? We're still alive. But then something changes. And those original people who saw Jesus and believed he would be back before they died, they died. So now what? Uh-oh. Maybe we understood differently. Maybe we understood that when Jesus said, I'm coming soon, maybe that's not as soon as we thought. We need to start writing things down. So after the epistles, right, the epistles are still written in the time of the apostles. But then you have the gospels, right? And as you start looking at those, those are four different gospels written by four different authors to four different audiences, right? So there, are, there is distinctions among them. And different communities in the early eras would hold on to one, right? So there was a community that loved Matthew. They got Matthew, and that was their gospel. That was it. And they had a few epistles, right? But they loved Matthew. And they, they, they would have these Christmas pageants, and they would tell just the Matthew story, right? Thinking all about Jesus and the, and the star and, the, and all that. But then a nearby community said, we also put on a Christmas pageant. You should come see it. And so they go, you know, they, they travel, they caravan over to the next town, they go see that Christmas pageant. And they say, what? That is not the Christmas pageant we know. What in the world? You don't have, where's the star? Where are the kings? What, the angels? What, why are you talking about Mary so much? Well, this community has Luke. This community has Matthew. Oh, 
you have a different gospel. Well, I want that. Well, I want yours. So somebody, they Xeroxed it, right? Because that was around. No. Somebody, some probably someone just like you and me, probably not even at this point was it an, an actual scribe. Probably it was just somebody saying, wow, you've got, I want it. So they would spend a few days and they would write the whole thing out. And then they take it back home. And then they read it, and then and somebody say, I want that too. Can I copy it? And this assumes some sort of literacy between everybody, but you know, for the point of the exercise, let's do that. But then, you know, a, a few years later, you hear about an epistle and you hear about a gospel, and slowly things start to form. It's very nebulous at first, and things start to come together. But still over here, they think they've got it all. Over here, they think they've got it all. But they keep growing. And then there's some tension. And this is, as we talked about last year in the class on the confessions, uh, we come, as I think this is probably true of many faiths, that we come to fully, um, what we believe crystallizes when we have tension. We, we may say, I'm not exactly sure what I believe, but I'm, I'm sure I do not believe that, right? So in the same way, there were some, uh, scholars, theologians, priests in the first few centuries that said, you know that gospel of Luke that you had? I never liked that. So let's not use that, right? Marcion was one of those. He was an early church heretic. He later became known as a heretic who said, I don't like Luke. Let's, let's cut that out. We don't need that. Um, but other people said, but, but, but wait, that is important. We want that. We want that as our truth, our gospel, one of the four. So in that tension, that's where crystallization started to take place. Um, what was, shock, was shocking to me is it took a long, long time, right? Year 100, canon was still not completed. Year 200, nope. 300, nope. 350, not quite. Even 367, there was a letter by a bishop in Alexandria by the name of Athanasius. And he wrote a list of all the New Testament books that you have in your Bible before you. But even then, still, not all in the church were ready to accept precisely the canon as identified by Athanasius. This is almost 400 years after the birth of Christ. People still can't agree what is the Bible. Right? Oops. So a few moments ago, I was talking about the, old, the Hebrew Bible, right? The, and there's a three-part uh, three ordering here. The very center or the foundation of the Hebrew Bible is the Torah, which means the law. And there are five books in it. We'll come back to why that's important in a second. There's also the Nevi'im, which means prophets. And there's the Ketuvim, which means writings, right? So then we start figuring out, well, how are we going to order these books that we've, you know, I copied this from that community, I copied, and then I copied the letter, and then Paul sent us a letter. How are we going to order these? Well, some brilliant minds thought, well, what's most important? What's at the foundation of the New Testament? The Gospels, of course, and Acts. One, two, three, four, five, five, five. There's some parallelism between the first five books of Torah and 
the first five books of the New Testament. Of course, we've already said these are written in Hebrew. These are written in Greek, um, particularly the Greek and the, the scriptures from the New Testament had some apostolic authorship. We've spoken already a little bit, a little bit about chronology, right? I always assumed, I don't know how I ever got this in my head, I assumed Matthew was written first, because they put it first. Why wouldn't it be? It talks about the birth of Jesus. That's first. Mark, right? Matthew, Mark. Mark is second. All the way down. Revelation must be last, right? Not so. The, f- the first uh, books to be written of, of the New Testament were actually the epistles. And John and Revelation among the gospels were written last. Some estimate about 90 uh, to 100 A.D. So that kind of reframes the story. Again, Paul and other, other important apostles are writing letters to this church and that church saying, remember what Jesus said, because people still did. People still remembered. Maybe firsthand, maybe now secondhand, but people still remembered what Jesus had done, what Jesus had said. So there are, there are, uh, there's a group of um, apostolic writers like Clement who said, remember what Jesus said? do this. But it wasn't clear that he had Gospels written yet, that he had Gospels before him. So chronology here is important because then after all those letters were written, people started forgetting the stories. So let's write them down for future generations. Okay. So as we were talking about a moment ago, there was that nebulous time in which the formation, the canon was coming together. And uh, there was still some leftover question about the Hebrew Bible. All of those books that were written in Hebrew and Aramaic, all those books, great. We love those. If they're written in Greek, or that's the only thing we have is the Greek versions of them, that's when they become a little more questionable. And that's why the, these books in particular were not deemed um, as authoritative and as important um, for the history of the church. But, Tobit, Judith, additions to Esther, first and second Maccabees, Wisdom of Solomon, Syrac, Baruch, Letter of Jeremiah, and all the additions to Daniel, including Bell and the Dragon, which is the coolest sounding book ever, right? It's really short. You should go read it. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, all of these are still in some Bibles. These are in the Catholic Bibles, Right? This is that in between, in between the ends of the prophets and Matthew, right? Some of us just have nothing in there, or we have maybe some genealogy pages, if we're lucky. The Catholic Bibles have this whole beautiful section that goes into history and tells more stories. And you know what's what's a fun fact, and we'll maybe talk about this later if there's interest and time. The first King James Version of the Bible from 1611 had all of those in it. So if you, if you ever find someone who says, well, King James Version, that's the only Bible there is, that is God's word, period, ask them if they read the Apocrypha. I bet you they don't. Right? And this is, I'm, I'm not saying that to, to make fun of anyone. I grew up on the King James Version of the Bible. I love it. I still have scripture memorized in those words. But when you hold to just one English translation of the Bible, I think it's problematic. Because was the Bible written in English? No. No. 
But then you also get other books uh, that the Orthodox Church, right? So the Syrian Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, they have even more books beyond what the Catholic Church does. So First and Second Ezra's Prayer of Manasseh, Psalm 151. I thought there was only 150. Well, they have another one, which is kind of cool too. Third and Fourth Maccabees and the Odes. But then this is one of the coolest things I discovered is there is another church that we still consider right, the right church, right, that has even more books. You're like, well, who's left? We got the Protestants, the Catholics, the Orthodox, who's left? There's the Orthodox Tewahedo, which is the Ethiopic, those from Ethiopia, Ethiopia, and Eritrean, those from Eritrea. This church, this is one of the earliest Christian communities. Think of where think of where Jesus was born. Think of the Middle East, right? There were some who went straight south into Africa. This is one of the earliest churches. And then they came uh, north and into Europe and west and, and east and every. But Ethiopia, Eritrea, those are some of the earliest churches. And they have even more interesting books, like First Enoch, which we'll come and talk about in a minute here. The Book of Jubilees, which I've, been, I've read both of these. These are a lot of fun. I cannot find this one anywhere. First, second, and third, Mechabian? No idea. And the Parlimpomena of Baruch. They consider these to be scripture, as authoritative as we consider the Bible before us. So I'm going to pause and take a, because this is a, big, this is a big thing. I want to talk about for just a few minutes, what does this make us think? What does, does this put our Bible into question? Why do we not have those books? What are you thinking about in your own mind castles there? What are you thinking about? Were there any gaps from what they ended up with with these additional scriptures? So they also had the the Hebrew Bible. They have the whole of the Hebrew Bible. They have the whole of the New Testament, right? They are a Christian church, and they have these. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, great question. So was it their culture that wrote it down since you can't find it? Well, this one, I think, the one, two, and three, uh, Mechabian, I think is only in Ethiopic. Yeah. yeah. Also called Gezer Ethiopic. It's a big cultural. Yeah. Yeah. Bias. Other questions, considerations? Yeah. Cindy? It's always made me wonder, you know, because you have the Council of Nicaea and all that where they, you know, had the big debates about which, Bible, which books to put in and everything. So God's hand was in that, obviously. But it was a lot of decisions by, made by people, too, right. for other reasons. And that's right. a little, uh, not disturbing, but it's a Concerning. little... Concerning. Yeah, it's a little weird, yeah. you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Who decided that and why? So these are big questions about the formation of the canon. And I, I'm not actually confident, so I won't say this with whole authority. I think the Council of Nicaea was to talk more about theology rather than those books that were included in the Bible. Um, but it is around the same time period. So, yeah, is God in this? 
Is God in, in the formation of our Bible? How about the Catholic Bible? How about the Orthodox? How about the Ethiopic and Eritrean Bible? So this raises questions. I don't have all those answers, but they're interesting questions to ponder, right? Okay. Uh, there are also books that were almost included in the canon, but were not. So other fun ones to read, The Shepherd of Hermas, The Epistle of Barnabas. Remember that slide way back at the very beginning? I had that Greek manuscript up. Codex Sinaiticus, which is very important, discovered at St. Catherine's Monastery in the 19th century. Uh, it was one of the, the most complete Bibles we have. Well, in addition to the books that we read, it also had Shepherd of Hermas, an Epistle of Barnabas, right there alongside other books that we don't, and we don't consider these canonical. Also, the Didache, which is an important book, that was also almost included. But then, there were books that were almost excluded. Books, some of them we really like and read a lot. So Philemon, Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 3 John, and Jude. Irenaeus, an early church father in 202, who died in uh, the year 202, he didn't use them. He, we have a lot of his writings, and he wrote a lot about scripture. He didn't talk about those at all, and he didn't use them. The book of Revelation was the last to be accepted. Lots of people wondered, what do we do with that book, even back then? So if it's confusing to you, hold tight. We'll talk about it in May, right? But even in the early church, they were like, what is this all about? Are we really going to put that in there? Yeah, okay, fine. We'll put it in there. Um, And through the centuries, more scholars, more theologians continue to question is this right? Is this? So there were questions, and we won't go into this now, but questions of, is the canon closed? Is it just these books? Can we add more? That's a question I wrestle with and I continue to wonder about. Um, But also then Luther, Martin Luther in the 16th century said, uh, I, you know, I, I accept it. It's the Bible we're all reading, but I, I'm not too fond of these books. Hebrews, James, Jude, Revelation, they're called his anti-legomena. They were the books he wasn't quite fond of. Uh, he is, we, we laughed a lot in seminary that in, in uh, Luther's day, he called James the epistle of straw, right? He was not fond of it. So we also have books that are missing, right? You go throughout the Bible and uh, somebody will say, oh, well, I'm not going to give you that whole story now. Just go read the book of Jasher. What? Which one? Or uh, over numbers, they'll say, oh, well, I'm not going to give you that whole story and tell you. But go look in the book of war, the wars of the Lord. Where's that? Um, also, in Colossians 4, Paul says, you know that, epi- that epistle, that letter I wrote to Laodicea? Go read that one. That, that'll, that'll be what you need for yourself, for, your, for this time, for what's going on in your world, and your life. That'll give you some encouragement. Go read that letter. I sent it to the Laodiceans. Where is it? We don't have it. And so what do we do with that? If we, if we tomorrow uncovered and all the scholars agreed and said, folks, we finally found the epistle to the church at Laodicea, what would we do? Would we have a big council and say, okay, it's 27 books of the New Testament, but we need to add one more. It's now 28. Would we do that? I don't, I don't think so. And also, over in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, I see that I hurt you with my letter. Some scholars believe that 
he's not talking about the first Corinthians. They think he's talking about a letter even before that. So that would be first Corinthians. And what we read as first is actually second. And what we read as second is actually third. I'm not going to go through this. This is something I really enjoy reading and studying and talking about. It's called a pseudepigrapha. These are, this is con, uh, religious literature contemporaneous with scripture, right? Here we have first Enoch. Um, fun things like the apocalypse of Zephaniah, the vision of Ezra, apocalypse of Sedrach. Um, let's see. This is a fun one. Joseph and his zenith. Um, life of Adam and Eve. Oh, that should say Eve, not Eden. Even. Um, but these are all books written in various languages in that same era around um, the time that scripture was being written. This is the old, this is just the Old Testament pseudepigrapha. But these are beautiful stories. And you think, oh, well, that's great. But how does that help me read scripture? We also, there are also lots of other writings that are Gnostic and only somewhat helpful. Here's a whole list of those. Uh, when we talk about Apocrypha, and we'll come back to Pseudepigrapha in a moment. When we talk about Apocrypha, when we read Scripture, sometimes there are echoes. Not parallels, I don't want to go that far, but there are echoes in the Apocrypha. So over in Wisdom chapter 2, we hear some echoes of something that we heard in Matthew 27. This is when Jesus is um, being crucified, right? He saved others. He can't save himself. Let him come down from the cross now. We'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. And if he wants to, for he said, I am God's son. Over in wisdom, if the righteous man is God's child, he will help him and will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. Whoa. It's not a direct parallel. It's not word for word, but that's, that's pretty interesting, is it not? Now, let's jump over to Jude, little, little book of Jude, where it reads, See, the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict everyone of all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It was also about these that Enoch prophesied. What? Hold on a second. Hold the phone. You're telling me Jude is quoting from this book that we don't have in the Bible, but we actually have it? Yes. Yes, we have first Enoch. We have almost this direct quote. And behold, he cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all, destroy the ungodly. Da, 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 da. The Ethiopic church has this in their canon. The Orthodox, the Catholics, and the Protestants, we don't. But for Jude, Enoch was a prophet. And Enoch was authoritative. So what do we do with that? I don't know. Again, I'm here to raise questions. For you, for your own study of the Bible, as you approach it, are there more questions to be asked? Always. There are always more questions to be asked. First Enoch, I'm kind of glad it's not part of our canon because it's a little crazy. Um, there are such things, uh, there's a lot, a lot, a lot about fallen angels uh, and demons and angels. And there is, it goes way in depth about that stuff, especially talking about the children that, that these fallen angels had with women. We get a hint of that in Genesis, right? Uh, 
First Enoch is also important because it's the first time that the, the phrase, the son of man, was ever used, as far as we know, which that was then later used to describe Jesus. There's a lot of apocalyptic literature, or apocalyptic language, excuse me, and there's a big emphasis on eschatology, or the end, the coming of the end. These are the books, the 66 books that we Protestants consider to be canon. Should we consider more? That's not a question for me to answer. But here are those in the Hebrew Bible. Here are those in the New Testament. And we could, remember that thinking of the the galaxy all the way down to my front door, we could zoom in on just one of these. We could take one gem out of the bag and just hold it up and look at all 70 of its faces. And learn a lot. And that would be great. But we have about 30 weeks for the survey. We have 66 books. Some of them are one chapter and some of them are 150 chapters, right? We can't do it all. So instead of talking about individual books, what else can we do? We can also talk about genres, right? So we can talk about genre of, uh, throughout the Hebrew Bible, of the Pentateuch. We can talk about the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the historical books, all those here in blue. We can talk about the wisdom books, the prophets, New Testament, we've got Gospels and Acts, all the epistles and Revelation. It's always kind of by itself, right? We could do this, and this is a, a distinctly Protestant methodology for looking at the genres of Scripture, or we could do this, and this is the approach that we will take. So we will look at the Hebrew Bible. This is our order. This is the order you'll find them in our Bible, but this is not the order you'll find them in Hebrew Bibles. For the Jewish community, as we talked about before, there are three divisions to the Bible. There's it's called the Tanaka, which is a, it's actually an acrostic. They make it into one word, right? So Torah, verse five, Nevi'im, all the blue ones, they consider prophets. And you're like, what, Joshua, Judges, First Samuel, those are prophets? Those are the former prophets, right? So those, we think of those as historical books, so they think of them more as prophets. And then there's the writings, the Kethavim. So uh, I'll particularly highlight here Daniel, we think of, we just had a class on Daniel in the spring, right? We think of Daniel as being a prophetic book. Not so uh, in the, the Jewish tradition, maybe it has a little bit of prophecy, but they consider it part of the writings. It's not one of the prophets. And the New Testament will all be the same. So this is going forward how we will structure the class throughout the whole year. We'll start in a few weeks, we'll start with Torah. Then we'll jump over to Nevi'im, Kethavim, and we'll actually flip-flop epistles and gospels, and then we'll end with Revelation, with a few classes in between to stop and pause and ponder and question. We could also, right, considering the macro down to the micro, we could also talk about an arc of history, and we'll talk about this more next week, so I won't go into it a uh, great depth right now, but... We, this comes from Max Anders, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. We could talk about the whole of the Bible in one big arc and simplify every, all 66 books down to 12. 
different topics. And you'll get this in your handout next week. Uh, creation all the way down to missions. We could do that. We can also talk about phrases and grammar. So uh, this is interesting. In the very first two words of Matthew are Biblos Geneseos, the book of generations. Well, who cares? What's important about that? Well, you hold up one gem, it may not give you all that much information, but you hold up another gem, that gem of Genesis, and you see over in chapter 5, in Hebrew, it says, Ze sefer toledot, but the Greek translation, which is very important in the early church, says, Biblos Geneseos. It's an introduction to Adam's genealogy. Matthew 1, an introduction to Jesus' genealogy. He doesn't come out and say, I am doing what the author of Genesis did in chapter 5, verse 1. The hope is that you can find that out. How do you figure that out? Commentaries. Sometimes those notes in the margins of a study Bible, that would help. This is, a, this is an interesting one that scholars uh, like to debate a lot, especially in the last century. Pisteos uh, Yesu, the faith of Christ or faith in Christ? This is a question that uh, scholars debate. How do we translate this? So, yeah, we've got the Bible, we've got Hebrew, we've got Greek, but when we translate it, that's when it starts to become a little more problematic. Because every translation is a little different. Every time you say, I have certain proclivities, I think certain things already, so, oh, it must be saying this. So when I translate it, I might say the faith of Christ or the faith in Christ. But in Galatians 2, uh, as rendered in the NRSV, it says, we know a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified uh, by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law. So the question is, as we understand these phrases, we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ? Should we be reading this as objective genitives? Which means naming a faith in which Jesus is the object. So we have faith in Jesus. Is that what saves us? We have faith in Jesus? Or is it a subject, subjunct, subjective genitive, meaning a, naming a faith in which Jesus is the subject? So it is Jesus' faith that saves us. Whoa. Same phrase in the Greek can mean two different things. Some scholars will go one way, some scholars will go another. There's also words, right? This is down to my front door. We went from the Milky Way all the way to my front door. Here we are at, talking about words. There are some words that we just quite don't, don't, don't quite know what to do with. There is something called hapax legomenon, which means it is a word that it appears only one time in the whole of the Bible, and we're not quite sure what to do with it. So, uh, it's a gopher in uh, Genesis chapter 6 when Noah is told to go build an ark. God says, go build it with it's a gopher. Problem with that today, we have no idea what that is. Nobody does. So what do they, they, they do? Even centuries ago, they just said, well, I don't know what gopher is, but let's just put it as gopher. Gopher. It's not a real tree. It's not a real wood. We don't know what it is. The literal meaning of that word is lost because it appears one time 
and nobody speaks that Hebrew anymore. There is a modern Hebrew, not the ancient Hebrew. We don't speak it anymore. So it is lost to us. So it's a transliteration. Some people say maybe it's Cyprus. I don't know. Um, But even we say every week the Lord's Prayer. There's a word in there that appears only two times. This is a dislegomena uh, in Matthew and Luke's Lord's Prayer. So this is epiousios. Give us this day our... We all know daily. Well, in, in the Greek, it is epiousios. We don't know what that means. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the canon. And uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't really appear in other ancient Greek manuscripts. So what do we do with it? So we look at translations. What have those people from the early church said? This is how we understand it. This is how we translate it. So a point that I will, um, we'll go on to this in a moment. But uh, one point I want to make is that canon came about through liturgy, right? It wasn't all these people in ivory towers saying, uh, I think we're going to take a vote and we're going to get this done and we're going to do this this way. It was people in community, in a church, coming together and reading these letters, reading these gospels and being formed by them together and, and saying, that's it. That is the word of God for us. That is forming us. And so... In that community, they understood what epiousios meant. And sometimes when they came into community with others who didn't speak that language, they would translate it. And they would say, oh, this is what that means. So that's how we understand epiousios, by those translations. Here are other words to consider in the Hebrew. Elohim, a very common word for God in the Hebrew Bible. A fun fact, it's plural. Um, It's not singular. So every time you see the word God, not Lord, but uh, God, it's Elohim. It's a plural word to begin with, even though we're talking about one God. Uh, yod Hey vav Hey, which is the divine revealed name, what, what God says on the mountain to Moses, this is my name, Yahweh. Problem with that is we actually don't know how it's pronounced because um, it became so holy, only the high priest would utter it. And then the temple was destroyed. And then they went into exile. And all sorts of things happened. The, the pronunciation has been lost. Our best guess is this is Yahweh. We can talk about shalom. It's more than peace. Uh, let's jump to the Greek. Christos. Every time we see the word Christ, it is the word for anointed. Every time we see the word church, it is ekklesia. Ekklesia doesn't just mean a building. It means those who are called out. Those who are called out. Uh, Scubalon, this is a fun one, we'll end with this one. Uh, over in Philippians 3.8, more than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard all things as scubalon, rubbish. So our translators um, didn't want to give us the full force of this word, but this is as close as I think Paul gets to swearing here. Um, We may say that this is crap, right? I regard everything as crap in order that I may gain Christ. If you saw crap in the Bible, what would you do? Right? You'd be like, what? This is, I I paid that much money for this and it says crap in here? This is not a holy book. What is going on? So we don't translate scubalon as crap. We say, oh, it's rubbish. A little bit of a euphemism here. Um, But Paul is being a little profane, right? And, And that effect is to say, 
Everything else is crap. But God. But God. Knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, is of surpassing value. There's beauty in that. He's reached the bottom. That's the kind of language he uses. This is where we have gone. The Torah has 70 faces. We'll focus in this class throughout genre, but in sometimes we'll zoom out, sometimes we'll zoom in. And with every turn of the gem, we have an opportunity to ask the questions and to learn more about our holy book. This should always encourage us. There are more questions to be asked. We don't know it all. No one does. Give me three PhDs, I still won't know it all about the Bible. There is always more to learn. And some of you know more than me. And that's okay. We're all on this journey together. These are the scriptures we call holy. These are the scriptures that point us to God. I am excited for this year together. I wish we had time for questions. Please hold them for next week and let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day. We give you thanks for your holy word before us that we have this special time to consider how through the ages your spirit spoke and how through the ages your spirit drew men and women to write and to copy and bring these books into our hands today. We give you thanks for all those men and women through the ages and pray that we may hide your word in our hearts. We give this day and all that we are over to you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we say together, Amen. Amen. Ah, yes, yes, yes. So.